God's words together um, in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Please stand as we read. In those days, uh, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, uh, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. We are in a series called Nativity, and just to catch some of you up, um, of what's going on in case you hadn't been here. We're uh, doing our Christmas series called Nativity, and the idea is <coughs> there's several different cast of characters that are present at the nativity scene, whether you have a really nice one or whether you have a VeggieTales one. Um, you know that there's Magi, there's shepherds, there's Mary and Joseph, and then the last one is that there's Jesus. And so each week we've been kind of looking at those particular characters and the, the set of verses that go with those characters. And so the first week Jack preached on the Magi about worship. Last week I preached on the shepherds, and we talked about um, what was going on with the, with the worship that was going on um, with why they were there. And this week we're looking at Mary and Joseph. And then tomorrow night we'll, we'll finish it with uh, Jesus, so, which is you know, probably the best place to finish. So we're going to be doing that. Um, and that's, if you're here for the first time, that's, that's where we are. Um, just, this is just kind of a holiday observance. It doesn't really necessarily apply to anything. It's just an observance I've noticed. And then we're going to pray. And then we'll go into the, uh, the thing. But one of the things I've observed, and there's a little bit of application, is um, whenever you're going into places to go shop, I know that most of you... If you're like me, you wait to the very end, and so you see these guys standing outside, and they're ringing the bell, you know, Salvation Army collectors. Um, I just think that that must be, and I just heard that that's actually volunteer. That must be one of the hardest jobs ever, to sit there and, like, have to listen to a bell ring, just the most torturous job that you've ever had. And literally, the the irony of it is that it's self-inflicting torture. You're the one that actually has to torture yourself by listening to the bell and and freeze. And when you get up there to them, it's always that awkward thing where you're wondering if you should give and they don't, you know, you don't have any change and they look at you and they're smiling and they're expecting it and you're like, hey, and you don't know what to do. Anyway, I just thought that was one of the most awkward kind of things. Another thing which someone just pointed out is obviously having um, kids you don't know if your Santa sit in your lap you know, and they have all the germs and everything. That was pointed to me by a germaphobe, so I didn't think of that one. Um, but anyway, um, I just thought we have some interesting things that are going on, and interesting kind of traditions and things that are happening. Um, and so in the midst of all those things, um, I want to look at a set of scriptures that are probably pretty familiar with you as well and point out some things that might be uh, new to you. And so we're going to do that as we're looking at Luke 2, 1 through 7 today. Um, but let me pray first, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this time that we can get here and get together as a church family, um, you know, especially around this time of the year, Lord, where we're celebrating the birth of your son, the birth of God, the birth of Jesus, the incarnate man come for us to save us from our sins. And we pray, God, that as we, as we look at this particular text, which is, is so familiar, and as it shows us some amazing things about who you are and highlights for us, the amazingness of God, that we would take a step back and just be in awe, God, of who you are, in awe of how powerful you are, in awe of how in control and sovereign you are in all things. And yet, while you're all those things, how detail-oriented you are, how close you are, how intimate you are, how we can have deep communion with you. And as we see these things, God, that it would drive us towards Christ. It would drive us towards being worshipers of Jesus. I pray for myself, God, that you would come now and speak through me. I'm completely dependent upon you for anything. And in these moments as well, I pray that you would teach me and all of us from your word and that we would be moved by the Spirit to want to give you the glory and worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, one of the main things that you want to do when you're preaching is give people some handles. And that just means as you're 
going through a particular text, you can see, hey, look at what these people are doing. Look how they reacted. And you can either say, react that way or don't react that way. And whenever you have that, you can say, all right, well, I should do this. I should do that. And as a pastor, preacher, sermon, whatever writer, you want to give handles so that you have things that are applicable for you. Like, okay, I understand that. That's what I'm supposed to do. The text really is obvious. I'm supposed to give. I'm supposed to be in community. I'm supposed to trust Christ in certain things. And there's not a whole lot of that this morning. Um, what we're looking at today in these first seven verses are just some things about God. Here's some, some characteristics about the nature and character of God. And so um, what I'm hoping that the Spirit comes and does is as we see two things, these two amazing truths about God, um, as we observe two, um, n- two things about His nature and His character, and there's not a whole lot of handles here, that we're just going to kind of take that step back and allow ourselves to be in awe of who he is, in awe of um, how he orchestrates the universe. And as we see that, there's not necessarily a handle that's like, or an application, so therefore, go. Instead, it's just, wow, this God we serve is amazing. And what would happen is our hearts would just be inflamed and moved and compassionate towards worship, towards him, and it would just change the way we want to live for him. So there's not a, therefore, go do this today. Um, It's just, I'm hoping that for you and for me, that as we see just how amazing God is, that our heart would be pricked some, and that we would have a deep desire to want to give him more glory, live lives of worship for him, as we see a couple things about his nature and character. Today is exclusively these two things about God and not about us. And I'm hoping that as we grow and as we mature in Christ, that we would say, well, that's really what I want more than anything. Please, as I come here, tell me more about my Savior. Tell me more about what he's done for me. Tell me about who he is, what he's done. And in the, me- in the end, really, Fud, that's what I need the most is for you to and for the Lord to open up who Christ is so that my heart is more inflamed and on fire for worshiping him with my life. That's my deep desire for us today. So, um, that's, that's what we're going to be doing. Now, most of us, uh, and as we're looking at these two uh, amazing truths about God, they're contrasting things. They're, they're, they're different, but he's both. And so um, most of us are kind of wired one way, and we generally see compliments in our, in our marriages. Most people, are, or not most people, some people are built as the big picture person, you know, the fly by the seat of your pants, hey, let's go do all these things. And then you have the, the person that compliments them as their spouse, the, the killjoy or the wet blanket or the responsible one that says, well, how are we going? I'm not talking about my spouse. This is strictly hypothetical. That um, you have the person that's the responsible one that says, how are we going to do that? How are we going to buy that? How's that going to happen? We need to have some details. And so if you're planning a vacation with a spouse, you know, let's just drive and see where we end up. No, like, no, we got to Google for like months ahead and, and have every minute detailed. Again, this is all hypothetical. Um, but we have usually one person that's kind of wired one way or wired the other way. I guess there's a third option, which is you're not either. But I mean, what are you even accomplishing in life if you're neither one of those? So you've got, you've got one or the other. But generally, generally, we don't see people that are both big picture, orchestrating, wanting to have big things happen and detail-oriented. You have, you have one or the other. Um, and here, what we're going to see, in, in a lot of ways, we're going to see the nature and character of God demonstrated to us in, in two amazing, powerful ways that while he is um, overall thing, big picture, and, and, and orchestrating all events and all things that happen, and usually those kinds of people are kind of hands-off on most details, that with us, even though he's bringing about everything, he's also intricately and deeply and day by day and every moment involved in every aspect of your life he's orchestrating birds to fly to branches and grass to grow to certain lengths he's that detail oriented and all of creation and your life as well but he's also over all things that are happening orchestrating standing outside of time and making everything happen we're going to see those two big contrasts here that Jesus, that God himself is orchestrating and has been orchestrating decades, centuries, and millennia to line up to happen at this particular day that we're going to see Mary and Joseph traveling to a little podunk town of Bethlehem to have a baby. Um, And there's not a whole lot of application. There'll be some at the end, and we're praying that the Lord will drive that all home for us, including with myself. Um, Not only that I'll be able to actually speak it clearly, but that it would 
coming to my heart as well. So let's, let's see these particular verses. And as we're going through verse by verse, I'm just going to show you a couple things in the text that hopefully um, the Lord can show you how he is completely in charge in orchestrating big events. And this is who he is, but also intricately involved in your life. And my goal is, as I said, this is just two things about the nature and character of God, and we're going to see these. And my goal is that we would kind of take the step back and allow ourselves just to see who God is. And as we see who God is over the next 40 minutes, just be in awe of who he is, how deeply he loves us, how he's absolutely involved in everything going on, and our hearts would be inflamed with deep love and affection for him. And there's not so, therefore, go do this tomorrow. It's my life needs to be lined up with right affections and worship towards him because of who he is, not just because it's Christmas time, but for the rest of my life. So that's my goal. So um, let's go ahead and look at verse 1 here. We see, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. Now this world, when it says all the world, this is a literary device. This isn't meaning like every single person in the entire world. This is just all those people in that particular area are supposed to be supposed to be doing this. And it says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, his name is not Caesar, nor is it Augustus. His name is actually um, Gaius Octavius. I don't recommend that as a name, um, but his name is Gaius Octavius. Um, and Caesar is just what they call the Roman emperor. And this Augustus um, is meaning majestic or highly revered. And so he is the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was in power before him. And um, Julius Caesar, if you know anything about him, basically towards the end of his time, um, started issuing uh, the decree that you're supposed to think of me as God. Now, obviously he wasn't because he died. um, But he, he got that going where people are in the minds of trying to lift up who the Caesar is, or the Roman emperor at that time, Julius Caesar, that they are godlike in some godness. And so this guy right after, Caesar Augustus, comes in, and he's the Caesar after this. Now, he wasn't quite as extreme as his, his great uncle, or whatever it is, uh, Julius, but he still kept some of those things. And so let me talk to you a little bit about Julius, I'm sorry, Caesar Augustus, so we can know how God is in the big picture orchestrating things. Some of these things are just absolutely amazing. Now, Caesar Augustus was a pagan, no doubt. I mean, just he was just a pagan, and he was pretty ruthless on his pathway towards becoming the emperor. But once he was um, the emperor, he was ruthless getting there. But once he was the emperor, he was the emperor for about 40 years or so. And as he was the emperor for about 40 years, there was um, a, a good season for Rome, Pax Romana, Roman peace, where they had some things that were happening that were actually beneficial for the people of this particular time period because of him. He built things. He was a good administrator. He, whenever they would go in and, and kind of take over places, he generally let the people kind of keep some of their culture, although, you know, he's obviously taken over their land. But um, he had some positive things about him, some positive things. But what's amazing here is that he ruled for 40 years, around 40 years. And so what happened is God had Julius Caesar, who set up where um, everybody should think him of as God, let his nephew, Gaius, get to be the guy that follows him. And then he is someone who ruthlessly gets his way, but then experiences a 40-year period where he's ruler and allows some things to happen. And about year 32-ish or so is the time where we're picking up here where it says, in those, decree, those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, um, you have to have a pretty good lifelong time of capital to throw out a registration to all the people at the time because they would have rebelled against this. But again, God um, orchestrated all the events that this particular Caesar Augustus would get to have a pretty long time to be this. So at about year 32, he issues this out and people are actually doing it. They're going to obey it. And so what we know is this. Proverbs 21.1 tells us this, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the, land of, in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And so although this is probably not a good thing because the registration is, gonna, is only for the purpose of letting us know, all right, we want everybody to get here, return to your homeland. We want to know that you're still alive. We want to know how many people are in your family because now we want to tax you based on that. And so this registration was really just in the end a form of, of way to make taxes. But um, God 
is saying, this Caesar Augustus, this king right here is a stream of water in my hand and I'm going to turn it wherever I will. And so he's going to put it in the heart of Caesar Augustus to issue this decree, to have this registration, which had not worked previously, but actually happens at this particular time because he wants, as we're going to see, this, you know, carpenter guy who live, who's living up in Nazareth. He needs, not needs, but God wants and deeply desires or is going to orchestrate events so that this guy Joseph, who's up in Nazareth, will get his wife because he's from Bethlehem and travel down to Bethlehem in order to be registered. And we know in Micah, Chapter 5, verse 2, it says that the Savior from Israel is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so, big picture things are happening here where God is orchestrating king's hearts to have a registration happen so that Joseph and Mary, who are in Podunk Town, Nazareth, will travel 80 miles all the way uphill to Bethlehem. And so then they get there, it happens to be in the third trimester of Mary so that they can fulfill the prophecy of Micah 5, 2, that while she's there, she's actually going to give birth to the king of the world. That is an amazing orchestrating of events, big picture. God is causing Augustus to do this registration so that the chain reaction will, will start setting off that's going to cause Mary and Joseph, who will obey the law, he knows that they'll obey the law, obey the law, rise up from Nazareth, um, travel south, but it's up, up a mountain. We're going to talk about that in a second. Um, to, to go to Jerusalem to be registered. And even though Mary is pregnant in her third trimester, and generally, I mean, this is not my experience. It's just what I hear. Women in their third trimesters are a little bit temperamental. And so as they're traveling, you can just imagine it's a great conversation. Um, but while they're on the journey, he divinely has it so that while she's there, she gives birth not in Nazareth, where that just that's where she would have been she would have had the baby in nazareth but fulfilling the prophecy of micah 5 2 that the baby would be born in bethlehem calvin looking at all this says this he said mary and joseph joseph and mary um, were led like blind persons by the hand of god to the place where christ must be born the providence or this is just the the sovereign hand of god moving and working this is what we mean by providence the providence of god brought joseph and mary to arrive in bethlehem at this very point in time god designed from eternity past moving decades and and millennia to this very point at this particular night not the day before not the day after that mary and joseph would arrive in bethlehem and fulfill one of the many prophecies of the old testament that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. And so here we can see God just in huge, massive, big picture involvement. Not just of um, them coming down, but allowing Caesar Augustus to have 40 years of, of, of being able to have prosperity and allowing Julius Caesar to have all these other things and, and Roman government. We can just see on and on. You can widen out the huge influence that God, or the big picture orchestrating, if you will, that God has been doing all along. So here's the first thing I want us to see about this amazing truth about God, is that God is a God of the big picture and transcendent. Now the second one's obviously going to be Almost the opposite of that. But um, let's talk about this for a second. God is a God of the big picture, which I think we all understand, bringing about and orchestrating all the things that would happen right according to his will, the exact way that he wants them to happen. But it also says that he's transcendent. By transcendent, we mean that he is completely and wholly independent of anything that's ever been created. Anything that's been created, we are dependent upon it. I mean, you have to have something called food and water to live, or you will die. I will die. We will all die. We are dependent upon things in creation. God does not have to have anything in creation in order to continue. He always has been, and he always has, and he always will be. Before creation, he existed in eternity past. He is completely independent of all things. So we're starting to get this picture. Not, not only is he a God of the big picture, he is the big picture. He is the transcendent God above over everything, causing everything, living outside of time, orchestrating everything. So that's one huge truth about God. Now, the second one, which is so beautiful, and until we get this picture down, the second one doesn't become as beautiful. But we need to know how massively huge God is and involved in causing all things to happen and that he's completely independent of all creation. He's transcendent above all things. Now, we're going to get to the second one. 
But let's just go ahead and ask this one question right here. Because you might be thinking this. I would be thinking this at least. And maybe it's valid or not. Fudd, um, okay, but what does that have to do with me right now? Like tomorrow or even today, I got to go to the mall and buy all the Christmas gifts that I haven't bought yet this season. I got some things that need to happen. What does that have to do with right now? I don't have a job. Or what does that have to do with, you know, next month? I'm not even sure how we're going to fill in the blank. Or, you know, there's all kinds of things you can fill in the blank. What does it have to do with right now telling me that God is in these big things? I want, to know, I want you to know this. That God is exactly right now already doing everything in your life that's causing those to happen. Not he's going to do. He's already right now in the big picture of your life, brought you here at this particular time. He's orchestrated all these events that you're at this particular college or you have this particular job or you met that particular person. All the big picture things that have been happening in your life, he's already been doing them and he's going to continually keep doing them. So when you're talking about these things that are happening, what about, what about, what about? God is bringing all those things about for his very purposes of making sure that when those things happen, you don't just center in on the situation and stay in that with tunnel vision, but instead that you look outside of yourself and see God's bringing these things about. Therefore, I need to be pointing all of my minds and thoughts and hopes and, and trust and faith towards him that he is good and that he's going to be faithful throughout anything. That's the point of, of knowing that he's involved in these things. So let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about this a little bit more in the text. Verse 2, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor. Quirinius is just one of the guys that's going to make sure, kind of an administrator, make sure that this registration was going to happen, that Caesar Augustus said is going to happen. And all went to be registered, each to his hometown. Now, as I said, Joseph was from Bethlehem. He had a wife that was in her third trimester, had no reason to go to Bethlehem until this was issued, and he knew that they they would obey. And so it says this, that, all went to, to be registered, each to his hometown. Now, I've said that this registration was for the purpose of knowing who's in your family, how many people you have, because we need to know how much to tax you. But here's something about Caesar Augustus that's clearly pagan and, and kind of whispering from the shadows, if you will, of Julius Caesar, who said, hey, I'm just God. Um, this is something that uh, Caesar Augustus is doing, kind of a kind of a god complex if you will wanted people to think of him in a, in a very revered way i mean his name was augustus right highly revered he in this sen- in the census was going to have an uh, annual tax that he was going to start putting on the israelites in particular and he did not just want them to pay some kind of certain money he wanted this annual tax to, to come from a specific portion of their money this specific portion of their money that he wanted to come to him was the money that they were accustomed to pay to God. And so in certain ways, he was ensuring his God complex, but also ensuring complete subjection or complete submission from the Israelites, no longer to trust God with what they were given to the priests, but instead to give it to him. He's, he's in a lot of ways trying to cause them to believe less in God, be dependent upon and giving trust towards god but but to him he wants them to be more in subjection to himself so he's literally wanting a specific portion of their money now here's whenever it just gets awesome this is whenever god is doing something as i said in the big picture that caesar augustus is trying to do something it's not like he's trying to do this against god he's just trying to build his kingdom but god in allowing him to tax people to take that particular set of money that's supposed to go to the israelite priests and come specifically to him this is what's kind of the big picture thing that's going on this is why this blows my mind actually whenever that's going on god's taking these actions of caesar where he thought he thought he was ending the people's trust in god instead he's taking that money and causing them now to give it to him and causing the census that makes mary and joseph to come down and give birth in bethlehem so that now he can put on demonstration the biggest provision of his faithfulness ever he's trying to cause them to not trust god and to be more in subject to the city or being more subject to the emperor but actually issuing this decree in the big picture is actually causing the people to see the biggest demonstration of god's provision ever namely in the birth of jesus christ the savior of all the world that is a pretty amazing thing that god's doing big picture i mean we call that a flim flam down south you think one thing's going to happen and you get you get the other thing happens so it's pretty amazing thing where it's the same idea of genesis 50 28 where joseph 
is looking at his brothers, and he looks at him, and he says, you meant this for evil, God meant it for good. Caesar Augustus meant this thing for evil, to take away the trust in the people, but ultimately, it shows the huge provision of God, and God means this entire thing for good. He uses wickedness for the redemption of his people. And this seems to be a lot of the ways that he does over and over and over. As I said, God is fulfilling Micah 5.2. Let me read Micah 5.2 to you, which is talking about how the Son of God would be born in Bethlehem. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel. And so here we see this great prophecy of old that it's causing Joseph and Mary to come uphill. You know, I'm coming down because in the map it's coming from north to south. Um, but causing them to come from Podunk Town A, Nazareth, to Podunk Town B, Bethlehem. Bethlehem's kind of a big deal now, but back then it's pretty small. Um, so let's just, just kind of get ourselves an understanding of what's going on here. In verse 4, you can see this. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, um, to Judea. So it says he went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea. So here's Nazareth, and here's Bethlehem, and it's saying he's going up which means um, with the layout of the land, even though he's traveling south, it's going up a mountain. So he's going up the mountain to Bethlehem. And it says he went from the, to the city of David, which is also known as the, the house of bread, which we're going to talk about in a second. Known as the house of bread, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house in the lineage of David. So Joseph is a direct descendant of David the king. He's from Bethlehem. He has to go over there. And register. So let's just get this picture for a second. You've got Joseph, uneducated, um, probably somewhere in, in his 20s, works construction. And he's got a teenage, 14, I mean, it's illegal here in America, 14, 15 year old bride, um, third trimester, and they're coming to you, they're engaged, they're not married, and he's telling you, this is actually not my baby. As a matter of fact, that's God's baby. And they're coming, they're traveling 80 miles uphill. She's in her third trimester. Now, we've got eight pregnancies right now. I think it's eight I counted. And no, no big surprise, my wife is one of them. It seems to be all the, all the time the case. In the last nine years, she's basically been pregnant. But, um, so we're on our fifth child. Now, I've been around some women in their third trimester. Do you know how uncomfortable a woman is in her th- third trimester? They don't feel like traveling. 80 miles, maybe in the rainy season, and she gets to walk uphill. <laughs> now, I don't know if she complained or not. I, she's 14 and probably hormonal, so there might have been some conversation about that. Um, but I, to get to rest, and you're uncomfortable anyway. And here's the thing. Sometimes she walks, and to get to rest, in order to take a break, she gets to sit on a donkey and travel. <laughs> My wife would not want to in her third trimester travel. We've traveled in the third trimester. We went to Alabama once. It's the worst thing in the world. I mean, you're stopping every 15 minutes for the bathroom. It's just the worst. I, don't, I can't even imagine this trek. And so here they are, um, probably around 20 and 14. She's pregnant with God's baby, um, traveling 80 miles uphill. You can just imagine the whole scene. Uh, and so they're going to Bethlehem, and they're trying to get into places, and they're asking for, for places to stay, and it says there's no room in the inn. And so that's kind of the situation. That's, that's where all, it's all happening. And we see that this is happening specifically in the city of David. Now, the story I just told sounds really far-fetched. It sounds fiction-oriented, right? It's like, that just sounds so fake. I mean, that sounds like Hollywood's going to make a movie out of that. That just sounds ridiculous. Um, and we, maybe we've heard it so many times that we don't think this is really, I mean, this is a real 20-year-old guy with a 14-year-old, 15-year-old wife that's pregnant, and they had just, previous chapter, been visited by an angel and said that this is really God's baby and that this is going to happen, and they went to a city, a real city. This isn't make-believe Narnia or make-believe Middle Earth or in a galaxy far, far away. This is in Bethlehem, a real city, and these are real people going to this place, to the house of David, to the city of David, Bethlehem, which is also known the house of bread, and they're going to this particular place, and this is happening. And so God's making all these big picture events, which seem sometimes on the surface seem scandalous. I mean, that just seems scandalous that this is happening. And God's causing all these things, even down to 
a virgin pregnant with his own child, bringing them to this particular place, and it says, in the city of David. Now, what I want to do here is transfer us to a verse from last week, just so we can all be clear what we're experiencing. This isn't just some crazy story that God thought would be awesome. There's a purpose to all this, and verse 11 is going to be our connection. It's in the city of David. We're going to see the pronouncement here of what's going on here. In verse 11, it says, uh, this is the angel speaking to the shepherds about this city of David occurrence, what's going on. And it says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. The city of David is just pointing back to the Old Testament. He's a king, this guy that's born. He's fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament. This is for real. This is a real occurrence. This couple that's coming down which seems scandalous on the surface is real that little teenage girl is really giving birth to the son of god and it says for this unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior a savior you and i we have willfully over and over willfully chosen to sin against our lord to sin against god and because of that because it's willful we are on a rightful just path towards hell unless something happens we need to be saved from that and the only thing that can happen is because of our willful sin it has to be covered forgiven and that path towards hell is then taken off and then we are put on towards a path towards heaven just using some matthew 7 language we will be on the narrow path and not the wide path and so we need a savior to come Someone who is perfect, that will live the perfect life, as Smap said before we started, and die the death for us. And whenever he is put before us and slaughtered for us, God punishes him for us. And now we have, as um, verse 14 says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those. Now we have peace, not peace with men, but eternal peace, reconciliation kind of peace with God because we have a Savior. And it says, who is Christ, the Messiah, the one that has been spoken of over and over in the Old Testament, the promised one, the Savior for us. And it says, the Lord, the ruler, the reigner, the one that is in control of all things, the king of everything. That's the one that's being born. So as we're seeing all these things happening in verse 4 about this Joseph and Mary traveling from Nazareth, it's because the gospel is being demonstrated to us physically by Jesus being born. Amazing big picture, amazing stuff that's going on here. The gospel is happening. He is going to save people that put their faith, and this morning he will save you if you put your faith in his work on the cross for you on on your behalf this morning. If you don't know Christ, I exhort you, I encourage you, I, I, I ask you right now, put your faith in Jesus and be saved forever. Come off the path towards hell and walk down the path towards life and live eternally with Jesus. Heaven is not a primarily a place about getting to go and escape hell. It's primarily a place where we get to go be with God, enjoy Jesus, experience life with Christ forever. And that is being offered right here and demonstrated physically before these people's eyes by the birth of the Savior. So, point number one, this amazing truth is that God is a God of big picture orchestration of all events, of all time, and he's transcendent. So here's the second one. We're going to see this in these next ones. God is a God of details. God is the God of details and imminent. He's right here. This is Emmanuel, God with you. And even more amazingly, he's so imminent. He's so intricately involved if you're in christ so right with you he's not only with you he's in you that's how close he is and so as i said we have to appreciate that if we really appreciate the first one we'll appreciate the second one more if we understand just how vast and how holy transcendent how holy independent god is he has absolutely no need to be involved in creation in order to live, yet he willfully chooses to be detail-involved, oriented, and living in us. That is a demonstration of great love for us. Those two truths should absolutely amaze us. And there's not a handle that says, therefore, now you should go be in community. You should give more money to Jesus. None of that. I don't have anything. I just want us all to take a step back and be amazed at those two beautiful truths about him and let the Holy Spirit shape and guide our heart and affections on what that means of how we live our lives. So here's the second one. 
we see here in verse 5 um, that she was to be registered, David, Joseph was to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. Betrothed is an engagement, um, like it is today, and in some ways, but you know, today, like if she's done, she can just say, we're done. But back then, if, uh, if you're betrothed, you actually, in order to break the engagement, to break the betrothment, um, betrothal, you actually have to get a divorce. And so that's why we see Joseph, it says, he didn't want to put her away. He didn't want to divorce her, even though they were betrothed, engaged. Instead, he was going to stay with her. Um, and then the, the angel came and appeared, and he said, I'm going to stay with her for sure. And here, the interesting also thing about the betrothal, it usually lasted around a year. And at the end of the betrothal, which you had to get a divorce to break, at the end of the year, that's whenever the marriage was actually consummated, and then you're, you're married. So here, Joseph is only betrothed to a woman that he has not had um, a consummation of the marriage yet, and yet, more than likely, and we don't know of any people with him, he's going to be involved in the birth of the child. Just all crazy, interesting, weird kind of details here. Um, and it says, he was betrothed who was with child. This who was with child, detailed orientation of God. He's fulfilling that prophecy of Isaiah seven fourteen, which says, um, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, that she's with child. And it says here in verse 6, And while they were there, while they had left Nazareth, and now they're finally in Bethlehem, it says, The time came for her to give birth. This time came literally can be kind of thought of in two different ways. It's really translated as the days were complete. So while they were there, the days were complete for her to give birth. And we can understand that, I think, in two different ways. We can understand that in the theological sense that Paul points out for us in Galatians 4, 4, where he says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. So God's big plan and detailed plan is it would happen at this particular moment as they arrived and because they were there to pay the taxes and be registered, not the day before, not the day after, but right then at that particular time, that this was the fullness of time that he would come. Have you ever stopped and wondered why he came at this time? Why 2,000 years ago? Why not now? I mean, we got the internet now. Like, people could really believe in him. Somebody probably show it on YouTube. There it is. There it happened. It's got to be real, you know? He came and chose to come at this particular time where the medium of transferring information is not through, you know, editing on whatever. It's writing down words, the words of God made flesh for us. He, he chose to come in the fullness of time at this particular time. There's also a second way we can understand this. So the theological and why they were there, the days were completed, the fullness of time had come. But it's also, and this is for those of you that have been around pregnant women, you know what I'm about to say. The time had come. You know what I mean? It's go time, Fud. Get in the car, break the laws. We've got to get to the hospital. Like, it's time. And so I've had that before. Um, and so the time had come for her to give birth. She traveled, and maybe, you know, for all I know, maybe the, the, the travel itself brought on the, 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 the labor. But the days were complete in her birth, and it was time for her now to give birth. And so even in this time, God's intimately involved in the details of bringing forth the baby while they're in Bethlehem, fulfilling the prophecy of Micah 5.2. This is where it gets even more amazing. There's, there's some crazy stuff in here. Look at this, and it says, She gave birth to her firstborn son. Firstborn, there's more to come. Um, we know that he has brothers and sisters. And wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Think about that for a second. No place for them in the end. We just got through talking about how amazingly capable God is of the big picture. He orchestrated Caesar Augustus to have 32 years of prosperity, to build up the capital, to do a registration, to make Mary and Joseph come down there. And somehow, the God of the universe is incapable of making sure the hotel reservations aren't complete. Right? No. That's not at all it. Even the filled ends are the details of God that are all according to his purposes. But why? What is he wanting to show us? Why are the ends filled? And why is he being born in a stable with smelly animals? What's the point? The first coming of Jesus, his birth and his death, are just screaming out to us, screaming out to us the humility of our Savior. 
just shouting out. He came in the first coming as a humble servant to die. Born and wrapped in strips of cloth and laid in straw. Screaming out. I mean, there's certainly more humble beginnings. But this has got to be one of the greatest demonstrations of humble beginnings. Lived a life, owned nothing, went to a cross, hung naked, and died for us on our sin. From the beginning to the end, a life filled with humility. I think that's what's going on here. To contrast for us, the second coming, where he is going to be demonstrating for those who are his children, all of his glory. And we get to see the fullness of the king. In contrast to the humble servant, the savior king that we'll see for eternity in worship. I think that's what's going on here. I think that God has just not forgot to make a hotel registration. But instead, he intentionally wants there to be no place in the inn so that whenever they come, we're seeing these humble beginnings. Now, here's another thing that I think is just amazing. Um, She wraps him in swaddling clothes, these cloth strips to secure him up, and she gets to take the Son of God, the person that created the ideas of babies, who she now holds a baby. This baby created the ideas of babies, and she wraps him and just strips of cloth, secures him, and Joseph perhaps throws some straw down and lays down. This is so eminent. This is so Emmanuel. This is so God with us. She's holding the Savior of the, king, of, of the world. And now, the Savior of the world is completely dependent upon two teenage parents. That's amazing. I think that's just amazing. Even more, this is where it gets awesome. No room in the inn. No room in the inn. Jesus was brought here to live and may not have had, if you will, the warmest welcome. And I think this no room in the inn can also serve as a great contrast for us. Contrarily, we the people of God will, don't have this kind of unwelcome welcome that Jesus had where there's not the warmest, but instead, contrarily, we who the people of God will one day be brought into eternity where we will have a warm welcome. We will receive our inheritance gladly and we will be received by Jesus much different than his coming and where he will look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. What an amazing contrast for us and our reception to his home as he comes down here and lives with us. And so you say, why? Why would he do that? I think 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is our best answer why. One of the, one of the best answers why. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, painting for us this coming of poverty and humility. It says this. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, extravagantly beyond all understanding, infinitely receiving glory in heaven, rich. Yet for your sake, he became poor. He became humble. He became man, born in a barn, so that by his poverty, you and I might become rich. I think that's why he did it. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. And so the next three days for us, the next three days are going to be filled with a lot of things that are vying for your heart, your mind, your affections, just filled with distractions. And, and these things aren't necessarily some of them bad. I mean, I've got kids, and we're going to put out, you know, cookies and milk for Santa. Th- they know Santa's not real, but we're going to do it anyway. I'm one of those guys. So anyway, um, but there's, there's distractions. You know, there's, there's distractions that are all around us. And the thing is, I'm not saying they're wrong, but the next three days especially, and really the rest of your life, there's so many things that are going to try to pull you away from focusing on what's the point of Christmas? What's, what are some amazing things that we can see? The vastness, transcendent, big picture God, and the detail-oriented, everything's happening for a purpose, and big picture, and down to the details of making everything happen, imminent God. Those are the things he wants to think us to think about and focus on in these next three days. And the rest of our life. And so the, I think the challenge, the application, if you will, is over these next three days, we don't let ourselves get distracted by Santa Claus and reindeer and Charlie Brown. Let's look at this in, and maybe we'll use this in as a, as a way to judge this. This, I think, is a practical lesson for us from looking at the in. 
It's a warning against the holiday life of hustle and bustle. The innkeeper didn't let Mary and Joseph come in, not because he was mean. He wasn't just mean-spirited. He literally just had no room. Um, There was no room in the inn. It was overcrowded. And I'm wondering, perhaps, this is just a practical application. I don't think this is what Luke is trying to tell us. I think it's just a practical application. How many of you, how many, maybe definitely including me, how many of us right now, our hearts are just like this inn? Our hearts are just like this inn. It's not that we despise Jesus. We don't despise Jesus. But they're just too overcrowded. They're just so filled with thoughts of riches or honor or prestige or pride or pleasure or money that there's just no room in our hearts. Your heart has a big sign that says, no room in the end, too overcrowded, don't have any space for you right now, Jesus. It's, it's not that you despise Jesus. It's just that it's too filled with too many other things. Your heart's just like this in. What's your heart chasing after right now? What's your heart feasting on? right now jesus deserves our affections our desire our feasting he deserves everything that our hearts can direct towards him not these other things that are overcrowding our hearts i think there's a practical lesson we can learn especially in this time period i want to read you a quote from charles spurgeon and this quote um he's written right around christmas time he's writing it about tomorrow and tomorrow for him at this particular time is christmas and so he's writing addressing this idea of our hearts and that it's filled with stuff and he's going to look at christians and he's going to say i want you to feast physically i mean literally feast enjoy the meal enjoy the food feast on the things of tomorrow physically but as you feast on those things make sure that you feast on jesus the most important reason Let those things be the things that drive you to Jesus and your joy and affections don't terminate on the feasting. Listen, that's what he says. Feast, Christians, feast. You have a right to feast. A right. Go to the house to feasting tomorrow. Celebrate your Savior's birth. Do not be ashamed to be glad. One of the reasons that we celebrate Christmas is to celebrate Christmas. It's a joyous time. The first coming is a time where we are exuberant about the coming of our Savior to save us from our sins. This is means to celebrate. And it's also an anticipatory feelings towards the second coming. It's, we're, we're meant to celebrate. We're not supposed to be somber and sad during Christmas. It's a celebration time. So he says, you have a right to be glad. You have a right to be happy. Solomon says, go your way. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God now accepts your works. If you're in Christ, the works that you're doing, which are unto God, are not considered filthy rags anymore. Instead, Revelation says that these acts are righteous towards him, and they're fine white linen that are acceptable now to him. This is amazing. Your works are now accepted to him. Let your garments always be white that are in Christ, because you do good works for the glory of God, Filled by the Spirit now if you're in Christ. Let your garments be white and let your head lack no ointment. Religion was never designed to make your pleasures less. Religion, Christianity, Jesus, was designed to enhance your pleasures. And as they increase, those things are to be used to point you through them to focus in and feast on Jesus. They're never designed to make you pleasure less recollect and this is what he says about christ recollect that your master ate butter and honey it's pretty awesome because i like both of those jesus ate them and he's just picking the things of the day that are considered these things when you eat these are, are things to feast on and enjoy good creations that make taste buds in your mouth explode and they they, they move your heart towards thanksgiving and he's saying remember jesus ate these things go your way tomorrow and rejoice so tomorrow, Sunday, Christmas, celebrate. And then he says, but in your feasting on the physical, think of the man, capital M, in Bethlehem. Let him have a place, the place in your hearts that gives him all of the glory. Think of the virgin that conceived him, but most of all, think of the man born and the child that has been given. This is what christmas and your life is designed for enjoy the good creations of god but don't let them overcrowd your heart 
feast on Christ. Be in awe of the nature and character of God and the person of Christ. That he is so big and transcendent, but so imminent right here, literally in us. The spirit of Christ, as Romans 8 said, is in us. The nativity, the nativity, the demonstration of this amazing display of the love of God, that when we consider it, that when we contemplate it, the birth of our Savior is always meant to lead us to doxology, to lead us to worship, not materialism, or to move away from Jesus, but instead to come to him. It is to move our hearts to be tremendously grateful for our Savior. And that's what we're going to do now here corporately. We're going to reflect back. We're going to feast on Christ and worship corporately. And then we're going to be sent to go feast on Christ with lifestyles of worship. And so there's not a direct application besides let's ask the Holy Spirit to make us just be in awe of the nature and character of God. And that awe, that awe-inspired, filled worship will inform us by the power of the Spirit of what kind of lives of worship we'll live. And let's do that right now in in worship and through song in the congregation and as we're sent. We're going to have a time here, a space here of a few songs where you can really sing out to Him. It's not just one. It's we've heard from God. If we've really heard from God and His Word, we need some time to reflect and think and give back. And you've got some time and space to do that now. And so we're going to sing a few songs of worship and however the Holy Spirit's leading, if you need to sit and reflect and maybe confess, do that. And if you just want to stand right now and give Him the glory, I invite you to do that. We'll sing some songs and then we'll be dismissed after that. Let's pray together and then we'll turn it over to Ben to lead us in worship. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. I thank you that there are texts in the Bible that aren't direct application, but they're just about you. They're just about you and who you are and what you've done for us. And I pray for myself and all of us that we would be so moved by you to say, yes, this is what I want to see. More verses about God, less verses about me. Show me who God is. Tell me who God is. I want to know more about Jesus and what he's done. That's the deep affection of my heart so that I may feast on him. And that informs the way we live. Be with us now as we worship together. Bless this time. May our hearts be focused on you. If there's confession work that we need to do, I pray that we would do that. And as we do that, Spirit, as you convict, that you would comfort, point us to Jesus, point us to the gospel, our only hope, and that we would stand and give you all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.